Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, October 30th, 2012. It has been a long time. Um, We're going to be doing something I've done a few of in the past, but it's been a long time since I've done that. That's our sermon cage fight. Yeah, we're going to have a full-blown sermon cage fight on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'll explain here in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Just because somebody has a growing church, just because their church is in the top 50 of the fastest growing churches in America, doesn't mean that they get a pass regarding what they say in the pulpit, okay? And that's like what I just said is completely the opposite of what is happening in practice today. What happens is, is that, um, let's say, you know, XYZ church planter, uh, you know, he, he plants his church and then three years later, he's grown it from a hundred people to a thousand people. And, you know, and, you know, and his, the, his growth rate is just through the roof. Well, what happens is, is you say, well, I wonder what he's preaching. So you open up their, the church's website, you listen to a couple of sermons and you go, weird, Something strange going on there. It, what this guy is saying doesn't really jive with God's word. In fact, I'm hearing him say things that are like really foreign to me as a Christian. And I've been, you know, in the church for you know X amount of years. I, I, huh. And so what you say is, is you say, you know, that guy's church might be growing, but folks, I mean, stop for a second and listen to what he's saying. Well, as soon as you do that, <laughs> you're branded a hater. Well, see, the problem's with you. You're just a hater. You're one of those people that loves doctrine more than people, aren't you? <laughs> this is how this goes. And you, and you say, well, no, 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 no. The issue is, is that he's saying stuff that does, it's not, it, no, that, that's not what the Bible says. And it, well, it doesn't matter. It's working, isn't it? 
His church is growing. Do you know how many people he baptized last year? I mean, serious. You just need to stop that sound doctrine somewhere where the sun don't shine and stop being such a hater and a complainer. You, you see how that works? You see, as soon as somebody's church is taking off, as soon as, you know, XYZ, relevant, hip, young, somewhat rebellious, audacious uh, church planter uh, begins to get some traction and, 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 and some notoriety and a lot of people are going there, then what happens is, is that if you even raise a word of concern, the problem is you, not him. And because his church is growing, you have no right to complain about anything that he's saying. Mm-hmm. That's how it plays out, isn't it? But see, that's not what Scripture says. The job of a pastor is to preach the word and to preach that which is in accord with sound doctrine. Whether they're experiencing numerical growth is not any indicator as to whether or not they're teaching the truth. The two don't necessarily follow. Okay, Islam is growing faster than Christianity. Should we deduce from that then? Well, that means that Allah is, is real and that Muhammad's a prophet of, of, of Allah and that we should all become Muslims. No, absolutely not. That's not how you determine truth. So we live in perilous times. And so what this program does is it helps you be able to stop what people are saying, hit the pause button and evaluate it and to teach you how to evaluate it in, in light of God's word taught clearly, taught in context, to see if the messages that are being put out there by some of uh, the, some pastors who are have the, the fastest growing churches in the country and in the world, to see if, if the reason why those churches are growing is because really God is bringing people to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, or if the reason why those churches are growing so fast is because, well, as the Apostle Paul says, they, um, well, they're scratching or tickling, itching ears, telling people what they want to hear. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul prophesied in uh in Second uh, Timothy chapter four, in fact, there's my Bible. <laughs> I hit the wrong button, and my Bible is talking to me. No, I didn't like what I said. Second Timothy chapter four. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. Wrote says, "I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and is appearing in His kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching." For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths or fables. But as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." So that's the idea, okay? So this program is all about biblical discernment, make, helping you listen because no pastor gets off the hook, okay? And you will find and discover that there are many megachurch pastors, especially uh, of the Purpose Driven Stripe or in the Willow Creek Network or part of Leadership Network, who are experiencing huge numerical growth, you know, in their, in their churches. But see, not all growth is good growth, 
Not all growth is actual growth. For instance, I mean, y'all, do they still have that television show, The Biggest Loser? I mean, y'all, you ever watched an episode of The Biggest Loser or you watched a season of it? Okay. There's a whole bunch of people who, come, you know, go to, uh, you know, to California to, you know, go to this ranch and, uh, and, and lose weight. You know, to, you know they, these are people who are grossly or morbidly obese. You know, people, you know, who, you know literally carrying 300, 400 pounds of, of uh, fat on their bodies. And, uh, and you know, they're, they're working very hard to get rid of that growth. And so when you take a look at somebody like a contestant on The Biggest Loser, you would immediately identify, yeah, not all growth is good growth, okay? Not all growth is good growth. So the question is, is the reason why megachurch, uh, these megachurches that they're growing is because of real human beings brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and these sheep of Christ are being fed God's word? Or is the reason why their churches are growing is because... Well, they've found a way to draw a crowd and entertain goats. Mm -hmm. Now, in the past, I've referred to a lot of seeker-driven church planters, not as shepherds or pastors, but as, in reality, goat herders. And the reality is this, is that the kingdom of Christ doesn't grow, and the kingdom of God doesn't grow by a single soul unless the gospel is correctly preached, unless sinners are confronted with their sin and brought to their knees in repentant faith and trust in Christ, the forgiveness of their sins. doesn't matter, you know, if they filled out a decision card or anything of that matter, you know, or if they've made a decision to uh, balance their budgets or made a decision to, uh, to you know, have life change in, in their uh, struggling marriage. doesn't matter if they've decided to apply particular principles to help raise healthier children or, or you know, or, or to find their uh, purpose in life so that they have a more satisfying career. You see, none of that, none of that is repentant and penitent faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. There's a big difference between those two. Big difference. So this program is politically incorrect. It is blunt. We try to have a little fun along the way, and, and it can be a little bit of a, of a rough ride, especially if you're new to listening to the program. But I would recommend that if you're new to listening to the program, you need to give it a few weeks, at least three get you know and you don't have to you know say oh I'll give you 3 weeks from today forward you can go back into the archives in fact um I'm still pretty sure that the, all of the programs that we've done for fighting for the faith are there for you to listen to we've only been on the air for about four and a half years so if you'd like to you know go back and listen to the archives of fighting for the faith you can do so but at least give us 3 weeks 3 weeks to get a radar fix on what it is that we're trying to say because ultimately what this program is really about it's about telling you about your crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and to assure you that the Scriptures are really about Him and that if you're not attending a church where He is being preached and proclaimed, that you are in mortal spiritual danger, the type of danger that could end you up in hell. And as a result of that, we can't sit by and do nothing and say nothing while you are in that danger. So this program provides a counterpoint, a counterweight, a countercultural message, and a message that's countercultural even within Christian circles today. 
can be a little bit rough to listen to. But like I said, give us three weeks and I think you'll get what we're doing. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, Just a, a little bit of a heads up. And that's this. Uh, Those of you who subscribe to uh, Fighting for the Faith's podcast via iTunes, one of the things that we will be doing in the days ahead, in fact, you probably saw this yesterday, is that there was a PDF in the uh, the, uh, podcast feed. And uh, what I did, you know, remember it was last week, you know, I've, it, recently, it may have been last week, I can't remember. But uh, recently I it told you all the, the advice that C.S. Lewis gave, and that's to, you know, to read old books. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is find good resources and make them available. And so you more, you, more regularly, you might find the occasional PDF file in the uh, in in the podcast feed, and uh, and like yesterday, I put in uh, I took uh, Clement of Rome's first epistle to the Corinthians, put it into the podcast feed as a PDF that you can all download and read and and stuff like that. And uh, the the idea being is is that I want to make more resources available to our regular listeners, and so um, there will be more of those in the future. Now, I don't know if you all know this. If you follow me on Facebook and uh, you, or you follow me on Twitter, um, then you know that on a daily basis, on a daily basis in the morning, in fact, you, you, sometime between 7 in the morning and 8 in the morning, it just depends on if – I'm able to get up on time and, and get these things out. Um, then uh, that we I send out a link to something I called uh, I call scripture uh, scripture catechesis and prayer scripture catechesis and prayer and basically um, it, it's taking you through literally the entire scripture in a year's time and there's uh, good uh, there's good resources along with that. Now one of the things I've recently added to our daily it's kind of a devotional reading if you would of uh, scripture catechesis and prayer is I've added a hymn of the day. Um, there is a website out there and the name of it is smallchurchmusic.com, smallchurchmusic.com. And um, it, you can get to it from the scripture reading and catechesis uh, segments that I send out every day. I put a link back to the original uh, file, uh, usually from that website, unless I've had to edit it to add uh, verses to a particular hymn, but the idea is this: is that if you are looking for a resource that has, you know, that basically, you know, for instance, maybe you've decided that you know you'd really like to take a look at and incorporate um, some, you know, some good historical hymns as part of your uh, as far as part of your daily devotional reading and things like that. I got to tell you, over the year, I mean, when I was a young guy, I didn't, I rarely used my hymnal. And my hymnal has become like the second most important book that I own. Okay, um, and the most important book is the script. You know, is the Bible, is the Scripture. But you know, I'm finding more and more and more that you know, I'm reading the Psalms out of my hymnal, and and these ancient historic hymns that these these are these are an heirloom. The, that that they are so rich and so deep theologically. And I'm being able to take literally the most amazing Christian doctrine out there and put it to verse. You realize these people were very gifted, and this is a treasure to be treasured, not something to be despised and loathed. And so um, I've been you know been adding that into uh, the, the uh, you know my Twitter feed. So if if you don't already 
see that, you know, follow me on on Facebook and Twitter. You you can get the link on a daily basis, but um, you know, that's the way to do it. But I'll, what I'm going to be doing uh, as we get closer to the end of the church here and get into uh, the time of Advent, I'm going to uh, consciously start adding some more uh, hymns into the uh, the podcast feed. So just be aware of that. So the idea is, is you're not just going to get, you know, Fighting for the Faith, the, you know, the podcast itself in the podcast feed if you subscribe on uh, on iTunes, but you will also be getting other resources, including uh, audio of hymns that you can download and, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll key them to the uh, current Lutheran service book, which is um, the hymnal that, uh, that, you know, that I use. But uh, all of these are designed you know, to basically be resources out there to help you in your discipleship, help you in your understanding of Scripture and church history, and, um, and, to, and to learn really these, the, you know, the treasure that we have in these ancient hymns. A lot of people ask me, you know, you know what's your beef with uh, you know, contemporary Christian music? My, my primary beef, the reason why I don't like contemporary Christian music is because I don't believe the theology they teach. I mean, and if they, I mean, if they do attempt to teach theology, it's so thin and so vapid that um, you know I just don't find it useful or helpful at all. So I mean, that's my thing. So you know, I have no problem if somebody wants to take a hymn and put it to a contemporary setting. I think that these things are far superior to the vast majority of uh, modern attempts at uh, at praise and worship. And uh, and so yeah, yeah. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. But if you don't believe me, just just on a daily basis, you know, go through the scripture reading and catechesis segment that I send out daily on my Twitter feed or and uh, Facebook uh, feed, and um, and you will just go do this, do the hymn of the day, sing it, and you're going to find that this theology is amazing. It's comforting. It's instructive. It's it's so many things. But anyway, so I, I just want to let kind of house cleaning thing let you know. So if you're seeing those in uh, in the podcast feed, you understand what's going on. So it's like, you know, there's more to the podcast feed than just the, the program. Right, exactly. And all of that's on purpose. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got a William Tapley update. Okay, William Tapley Apparently, some people are asking him kind of like the obvious question. Okay, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, a man who claims he receives direct revelation from God and is has some prophetic insight regarding the end times and things like that, has his own YouTube channel. Um, well, if you've been following us, uh, fight, fighting for the faith for any length of time, then you're aware that back, you know, a few years ago, there was a missile thing that went on in Korea and North Korea, and he declared that World War III had begun, but yet there's still no troop movements when it comes to World War III. Um, <laughs> and uh, for a while now, uh, uh, William Tapley has been saying that Barack Obama is the leopard of the Book of Daniel. And so, you know, and that, you know, and so, I mean, there's all this prophetic stuff that's supposedly tied into Barack Obama. So people are asking him, like, the obvious question. I mean, with the Gallup polls out, you know, you know, and all the different presidential tracking polls showing that Romney is ahead of Obama, what happens to somebody like William Tapley if Romney wins? I mean, it might mess up his whole prophetic insight channel. But uh, so he's he's going to try to address this uh, head on. In fact, the, the the name of the video is "What If Romney Wins," and so we're going to be listening to William Tapley. I mean, those of you worried that his prophetic insight um, videos would somehow 
lose popularity if uh, Romney won. Well, don't worry. He's got an answer for all of that. I've then got a um, a fantastic article written by Carl Truman called "9.5 Theses on Martin Luther Against the Self-Indulgences of the Modern Church. Timely article in light of the fact that, well, tomorrow is Reformation Day. Yeah, I don't necessarily care about Halloween, but tomorrow's Reformation Day. In fact, uh, tomorrow we're, I'll be sending out um, a link to uh, free resources, just as uh, as for you know, in, because of Reformation Day. So you know, be looking for that. But um, so this is a fantastic article. Then what we'll do is we'll take our. Uh, you know, I'll figure out where we'll put our break in here. I might, might take the break before the Carl Truman. But once we're done with Carl Truman's bit, then we're going to. Do a sermon cage fight. We have not had a sermon cage fight on fighting for the faith for a while. And here's the primary reason, okay, and that's this, is that I like to put preachers against each other who are preaching from the same text. And since, like, the better preachers out there are preaching from the Gospels, and since the seeker-driven guys rarely, if ever, preach from, like, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John— it's tough to find, you know, like pit the two against each other. So I've had to I've had to completely rethink the whole sermon cage fight thing and realize that if if this is going to be an ongoing portion of the fighting for the faith uh, radio program that we're, we're going to have to think out of the box, be innovative. You know, this is what these seeker driven guys are telling us we need to do. So here's the idea. What I've, I I couldn't find a seeker driven guy preaching on a gospel text that I could pit somebody, you know, who knows what they're doing <laughs> against him. So I decided I would change the rules and rather than being the same text, both of these guys are not going are going to be teaching from different texts. Um what we're going to be doing is we're going to say that this is the same occasion. And what I mean by that is this is that this past Sunday and you know today's Tuesday, so 2 days ago on Sunday was the observation within many of the Protestant churches, churches within general Protestantism, uh, of Reformation Day, the remembrance of the re- of the Reformation. Okay, and it, chances are, if you attend a a Presbyterian Reformed or Lutheran congregation, that there was some reference to Reformation Day. Okay. See, that's kind of the thing that you, you, we really focus on you know, this time of year, not Halloween. So the question is, if you were to just wa- you know just happen to be wandering around the country and wandered into a particular congregation in Murdoch, Nebraska, or wandered into a particular congregation in <clears throat> Florida, you know what would your Reformation Sunday? preaching sound like. So that's the idea. So it's two Reformation Sunday sermons, uh, one from uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman of uh, of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. He will be preaching on the Gospel of John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Now, what I find interesting about Brent's sermon title is that this is the most relevant I have ever seen him try to be when it comes to sermon titles. <laughs> The the title of his sermon is The Reformation of S and F Words. That's, who talk about edgy. In fact, even in the sermon, he uses the word audacious. No joke. He does. So we're going to be, uh, so contestant number one is Brent Kuhlman of uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska, and his sermon entitled The Reformation of S and F Words. And then uh, contestant number two will be David Hughes of uh, Church by the Glades, 
and his sermon supposedly on the book of Philemon. Supposedly on the book of Philemon. Now, I say that because having listened to the sermon, I'm a little skeptical about whether or not it's really based on Philemon. But his sermon based on Philemon entitled How to Hug a Vampire Dealing with Drainers. So, you know, if you have drainers in your life, this is like, oh, so relevant. So we've got a lot of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith and got to let you know all of the breaks are just going to be all over the place today because it's a sermon cage fight. You know, we, you won't be hearing the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, there's a whole new, there's a whole different routine for that. So don't let the fact that today's edition of Fighting for the Faith doesn't have its standard, you know, chunked out pieces, you know, don't let that throw you. It's, yeah, it's, it's still a fighting for the faith. So with that, we are going to dive into the program proper. And since we're doing a William Tapley update, it requires us to play this. That's right. It's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, So uh, William Tapley has been asked by several people who follow him on YouTube, you know, what if Mitt Romney wins? I mean, you know, he's invested a lot of time and post-production work. I mean, he's even learned how to do green screen stuff. He's invested lots and lots of time and energy Warning us about you know the leopard of Daniel uh, Barack Obama and what happens if you know, you know Romney wins? What will happen to William Tapley's ministry to the world? <clears throat> well, here's William Tapley to discuss. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. Quite a few people have been asking me lately, what if Mitt Romney is elected president of the United States? How does that affect Bible prophecy? More specifically, how does it uh, affect your particular take on Bible prophecy? I think that's what they were really getting at there, um, Mr. Third Eagle. And this question usually irritates me because that is not the question you should be asking yourself. Uh-oh. Uh, William Tapley, irritated. Scary thought. What you should ask yourself is, am I prepared? For what? What if Obama wins? Because that will be a complete disaster for the United States and the world. And I am predicting that that is what will happen. All right. So, okay, just so you know, <laughs> this guy claims to have, like, special insight from God. God told him... To- Personally, that he was the third eagle of the apocalypse. 
So his prediction, Obama's going to win. Now, I don't – quite frankly, I have no clue who's going to win, okay? And the one thing I've learned is to not invest any emotional time or energy in any of the presidential tracking polls because the one thing I've learned is, is that that whole margin of error thing, that's for real, <laughs> <laughs> and usually they're like you know three percentage points one way or another. That's a full six percentage points. So I mean, I listen. I I am not clairvoyant. I am not a prophet. I don't know how to read tea leaves. I've never once tootled around the entrails of dead animals to try to divine what's happening in the future. I have zero prophetic skills whatsoever. So who's gonna win? I don't know. <laughs> I will find out as soon as they announce who wins. I will know as soon as they announce. That's You understand what I'm saying? So here, um, William Tapley, he's come up with a full-blown prediction that the leopard of Daniel, the Barack Obama, the 444, that he's going to win. Okay, so all right. But for the moment, let's just speculate because a lot of people have been asking me, so... What if Mitt Romney is elected? Right. What will that do, for example, to Daniel chapter number 7, where the three beasts come up out of the sea? Because, as we know, Barack Obama is one of those three beasts. He is the third beast, and that is the leopard. So let's read Daniel 7, verse number 4. Okay. The first was like a lioness and had eagle's wings. Now, of course... The lioness would be England, and I believe that the person indicated here was Margaret Thatcher. She was the prime minister, and it could be Queen Elizabeth, but I believe Margaret Thatcher is the one. And she had... So, okay. so Margaret Thatcher was one of the beasts coming out of the sea. Got it, okay. It's been replaced. So, it's possible Obama or the leopard will also be replaced. Let's look at the second beast. So we got we got prophetic animal replacement going on. And behold, another beast, yeah. a second, yeah. like a bear. Right. Now, the bear, we know, was Dmitry Medvedev, because Medvedev in Russian means bear. And he has been replaced. So we do see here... Oh, man, this is all very confusing. So when these beasts appear out of their swampy pit or whatever, they can be replaced by other um, substitute beasties? I mean, I'm confused. A precedent, and of course, the third beast was a leopard. Yeah. After this, I beheld and lo, another like a leopard. Yeah. And of course, yeah. this was Barack Obama. Yeah, he, did, why are you talking about him in the past tense? Isn't he is the leopard? So... If he is replaced by Mitt Romney, right. that would not change Daniel 7 one iota. So would Mitt Romney then take up the mantle of the leopard? See, see this prophetic transference thing is sending me for a loop here. And, of course, the fourth beast which comes up is the Antichrist. Yeah. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Yeah. Terrible and powerful and exceedingly strong. Yes. And it had great iron teeth and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the rest with its feet. It was diverse from all the beasts that had come before it and it had ten horns. Now, what's important 
in this whole section is that these beasts are in sequential order. Ah, okay. First came Margaret Thatcher, uh-huh. then came Dmitry Medvedev, uh-huh. and then came Barack Obama. And of course, following these three comes the Antichrist. But since the first two have been replaced, it's possible that Obama will also be replaced, and we will be much more fortunate to have Mitt Romney as the President of the United States taking on the Antichrist rather than Obama. Uh-huh. So, okay. Now the next question is, what would the election of Mitt Romney do to Daniel chapter 11, verse number 40, which... <laughs> I don't think it would do anything to it. I, I... <laughs> Just correct me if I'm wrong here, but I just think you're a taco short of a combo plate and you really have no clue. Like you have like zero prophetic insight skills like whatsoever. I don't think that any of this stuff really fits. Describes Obama as the last king of the south, provoking the last king of the north. Now, wait a second. If if Obama's the last king of the south, provoking the whatever... If Romney became president, wouldn't that make Obama like the second to the last king of the South or maybe the third to the last if somebody succeeds Romney before the Antichrist shows up? Or maybe the the fourth to the last if there's like several presidents after this? You you see what I'm saying? With Vladimir Putin. Now, throughout the first four years of Barack Obama's presidency, he has been provoking Russia. And this began actually way back with... The, uh, the state of Georgia and South Ossetia, mm-hmm. and it continued when North Korea attacked South Korea, and all this past year throughout the Middle East, where Barack Obama has been provoking wars and insurrections in Egypt and in Libya and Iran and in yeah, this this whole segment's provoking me to confusion. Um, Yemen and in Syria, yeah. so Barack Obama has already fulfilled this prophecy. Which one? Will he also stay on to fulfill the last part of Daniel, chapter 11, verse number 40? So let's read that passage. Oh, please, yeah. And at the time of the end, that's the time we're in now, shall the king of the south push at him. And Barack Obama has been doing that. So this part of the prophecy has been fulfilled. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Now the king of the north is Putin. The question is, is the him that he comes against Barack Obama, or could it be someone else? Could it be... Well, wait. <laughs> Hi. You know what this is like? You know, when I was a kid, you know, it's been this really this long since I've seen it. I, you know, I would flip channels, and you'd come across television wrestling. I, you know, I hate to break this to you. Spoiler alert, but that TV wrestling stuff, that ain't real. Yeah, that's all theatrics. But it would, it would, it, there would be matches... Where there would be tag team guys, like you know, one guy would be in the ring and his partner would be just on the other side of the ropes, and then the other guy would be in the ring and his partner would be on the other side, and then you know, in order for the other guy to jump in and you know and and beat up on the other opponent, they would have to you know they would have to like touch hands or something, you know. So let me see if I got this right. Okay, if Obama's the king of the South, then he's the leopard that you told us about here. And it says that the king of the north will come against him. That's the king of the south with whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and many ships. If Barack Obama loses the election, then, you know, um, that would be quite a lot of things for, like, Putin to come against Obama as a citizen. I mean, I don't think he stands a chance. 
I mean, <laughs> if he's no longer the commander in chief of the United States, I don't I don't see how Barack Obama would be able to stand up against the combined forces of Russia. Just seems like an unfair fight to me. But maybe he could tag team, you know, and, and you know, touch Mick Romney's hand and then Romney could, you know, <laughs> weird. Anyway, I <laughs> so if you were wondering, you know, what would happen to. Um, William Tapley, if Mitt Romney did win, what would happen to all of his prophecies regarding you know, Barack Obama? Well, you're beginning to see the creation of a new prophetic story. See, <laughs> William Tapley is not one of these guys who finds himself bound by previous statements, logic, sound reasoning, none of that. No, you see, he he's able to just spin out bizarre new interpretations and stories, I guess at will. And it, this is a good survival tactic for him because, I mean, what would the world be like without William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times? So the world would definitely be uh, less um, rich in thought and prophetic insight without William Tapley. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We've got a great article by Carl Truman. Don't want to miss it. And then right after that, our sermon cage fight. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous... So that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look. Mate, I've definitely had enough of this. 
That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus, uh, uh. Well, sorry, Squire, I've had a look around in the back of the shop, and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio... Very well, I'll give them a try. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well thought out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny, and the geek in your life will really enjoy them. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. 
Dave, we're back. Warning, beware of people who call themselves prophets and claim to have insight into end times prophecy. (laughs) Never goes well. Bad things happen. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Now, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's not a lot of money for you, but it really adds up for us. So if you, if you, that's a great way to, to uh, support us. Click on the join our crew button. We, from time to time, send out perks to our crew members as our way of saying thank you. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along. I think this article will set the tone for our sermon cage fight today. Uh, from the Reformation 21 blog, the headline reads, 9.5 Theses on Martin Luther Against the Self-Indulgences of the Modern Church by Carl Truman. The, <laughs> just the name is just brilliant, okay? Carl Truman writes, he says, October is the month in which we typically remember and celebrate the Reformation. Unless, of course, you're in a secret-driven church, then you're actually... I've decked your church out for Halloween. While some Protestants have described the Reformation as a tragedy, it would... (laughs) Really? (laughs) Reformation's a tragedy. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it would have been a far greater tragedy if it had never happened. Completely agree here. Nevertheless, there is in the contemporary evangelical world a tendency to romanticize Luther, to remake him as a modern evangelical. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's hard for some of us to imagine, but I sh- I am sure there are some out there who who see Doc Martin as the kind of persecutor to those who would think the secret of a successful ministry lies in wearing torn jeans, paying regular visits to the tanning booth, and launching an international campaign against li- uh, librarian-led fashion trends and British dentistry. This is that's just hilarious. So, in honor of the good doctor, Doc Martin, man, and in the cause of saving him from the domesticated historiography of the beautiful young things, here are a series of theses about the Wittenberger, the cumulative force of which is to prove that in today's evangelical world, he would have made a most excellent taxi driver. Theses number one. Martin Luther saw church leadership as primarily marked by servanthood. For Luther, the servant nature of the ministerial calling was not some abstract principle, but was part of his everyday practice, linking his understanding of the God who was revealed primarily in the crucified flesh of Christ to the necessary attitude, outlook, and expectation of Christ's ministers. The minister, like his Savior, was to serve the poor and the despised and the things that are not. This is why when his barber, Peter, expressed concern over how difficult he found prayer, Luther went home and wrote him a treatise treatise on prayer. 
nor did he forget Peter thereafter. When the tragic barber killed his brother-in-law in a drunken dare, he was sentenced to death. Luther intervened to have the sentence commuted to banishment for life. As busy as he was, Luther never forgot whom it was he was meant to be serving. Whew, this is absolutely true. In fact, in the seeker-driven churches, in the um, purpose-driven network, the Willow Creek Network, Leadership Network, pastors are not servants. They are leaders. They are vision-casting leaders, and it's the job of the people to serve his vision to make it come about. Completely different thing. Thesis number two. Now, thesis number two. Martin Luther understood worship as rooted in repentance. Luther did not understand the law-gospel dialectic as providing the basis for antinomianism or as the conceptual underpinnings of a gutless, lopsided view of God as exclusively father. Rather, it expressed the deep, terrifying tragedy of humanity's fallen condition and how only God himself in Christ is the only one strong enough to stand for us, and worship was therefore not some sappy and sentimental emotion emotional response to how God deals with our hurting. In fact, he did not consider the primary problem of sinners that they were hurting. Quite the contrary. Their primary problem was that they were in deliberate rebellion against God and actually enjoying it. They needed not to be comforted, but to be hurt by the law, actually to be killed by it. Uh, true life was therefore to be found in a constant death to self and resurrection to God. Thus, worship was a constant dramatic reminder of how terrifyingly close we stand to God's judgment and how Christ is the only person who can protect us from the wrath of the storm. Worship is not thus a frothy celebration. It is much more serious than that, and as one as one can see by its liturgical fruits. In other words, we need less of Kendrick's Shine Jesus Shine and much more of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. Thesis number three, Martin Luther did not care for the myth of cultural influence nor for the prerequisite cultural swagger necessary to catch the attention of the great and the good. Luther certainly did catch the attention of the great and the good, but this was not because of his liking for craft brews, though like them he did, his tattoos, there was no record of those, his love for the arts and music about which he was privately passionate, or his ability to nuance his way to a place at the mainstream media's table. No, rather, it was because he called things as he saw them. He knew that the world really cares nothing for nuance, nor for friendship, uh, friendship with the church, and that attempts by the church to befriend the world are always disastrous to the former. As those currently attempting to nuance their way through the debate about homosexuality will soon discover, it is only those in positions of social and political weakness who are interested in nuance. Those who hold power always live in a black and white world where they alone set the rules of the game and they alone enforce them. Luther came to attention not because he mastered the rules of the establishment's game, but because he refused to play by them. Thesis number four. Luther saw suffering as the mark of the true church. For Luther, the true church would be culturally despised by the great 
and the good. Indeed, his concept of the theologian of the cross gave theological ballast to a a theology that eschewed the methods and criteria of success as the world saw them. In his 1539 work on the councils of the church, Luther saw the cross as one of the seven marks of the healthy church. Suffering and being regarded as scum by the world around were to go with the territory. One wonders today how full many of the megachurches would be if the government added 10% income tax on those who profess Christianity. Indeed, when some of the flagship behemoths of the new evangelical wave did not even have services last year on Sunday, December 25th, because it coincided with Christmas, one wonders what commitment, suffering, and sacrifice in such contexts mean, if anything at all. Thesis number five. Martin Luther was pastorally sensitive to the cherished practices of older Christians. It took five years from advocating for a vernacular liturgy to actually implementing one in Wittenberg. Then when he wrote his catechisms, he self-consciously used pre-Reformation language to express his new theology. Why? Simply this. He was pastorally sensitive. He knew that his task as servant, see Theses number 1, meant that he could not simply impose his will upon the people in a manner which would hurt, damage, and distress them. The contemporary cult of youth and innovation would have struck him as utterly wrong-headed and insensitive, a capitulation to the tastes and demands of the very category of people least likely to have anything useful or wise to contribute to how church should go about her business. And to those who say that such an attitude would never produce an invitation to appear on television or would alienate the beautiful young things, he would simply have referred them to Theses 3 above. His first priority was to care for all of God's people, not some narrowly defined aged group. Indeed, he deeply feared the harnessing of the energy and enthusiasm of the young people to a violently iconoclastic cause. Thus, he returned to Wittenberg in 1522 to put to flight those who were seeking to bring in sweeping reformation. Theses number six. Luther did not agree to differ on matters of importance and thus to make them into practical trivia. In 1529, Luther effectively torpedoed an alliance between the Lutheran princes and the Swiss Protestant cantons because of his belief of the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. To modern evangelical minds, that probably seems like lunacy. But as Machen pointed out, it was surely better that he held passionately to a wrong position on a very important topic than he simply set the Lord's Supper on one side on grounds that it really did not matter. Now, I've got to take an issue with Carl Truman here. Luther's position is the biblical position. Luther's right. The uh, Swiss Protestant cantons in Zwingli are and continue to be wrong regarding the Lord's Supper. Please see the Marburg Colloquy. Look it up on the internet. <clears throat> Just had to put that in there. And so anyway, he says, Luther did not allow the taste of his own day nor the urgent need of a broad confederation to lead him to set aside what he was convinced was the teaching of Scripture. Theses number seven, Luther saw the existence of the ordained ministry as a mark 
of the church. Early in the Reformation, the papal writers, uh, Prius, wrote a work attacking Luther's theology. So stupid was Luther, Prius claimed, that he had written his refutation of him in just three days. In response, Luther republished the work with a preface written by himself in which he said that he had written his refutation of Prius in two days. In so, <laughs> in so doing, Luther demonstrated an instinctive grasp of how the technological innovation of cheap print had changed the rules of the polemical game. Burning books was hopeless as a means of controlling knowledge. Subversion was so much better. Yet for all of his understanding of how important technology was and how crucial it was to be able to use it, he refused to make technocrats a mark of the church. After the catastrophe of 1525, Luther quickly came to see that ordained ministers those chosen by the church as exhibiting the moral and pedagogical abilities described by Paul were the ones to whom the church was entrusted. There is a lesson here for a world like ours where the beautiful young things with computer, sa- with computer savvy can aspire to set the church's agenda by sheer strength of technological ability. Luther was no Luddite, but he knew that mere media savvy did not mean one should be put in a position of influence." Thesis number eight, Luther saw the problem of a leadership accountable only to itself. Part of the problem Luther faced at the Reformation was the sheer lack of accountability of the top men. Boy, do we face that right now. I would point you to, well, Mark Driscoll, Rick Warren, Perry Noble, and Stephen Furtick and others, right? So part of the problem Luther faced at the Reformation was the sheer lack of accountability of the top men. The Pope and Cardinals policed themselves voluntarily answered to no one. The only means thereby, therefore whereby Luther could sometimes make himself heard was by using every rhetorical tool in the box from satire to hard-hitting polemic. He was fortunate, of course, in those days. There was no uh, aesthetic of personal pain and hurt which allowed contemporary Christians to sidestep criticism and indeed turn the moral tables on those who criticize them. The problem of unaccountable and influential leadership in evangelicalism is alive and well. O Martin, thou shouldst be living at this hour. Evangelicalism hath need of thee." Thesis number nine, Luther thought very little of his own literary contribution to Christianity. Shortly before he died, Luther declared that his 1525 response to Erasmus on bound choice and his catechisms were worthy of preservation. If he were alive today, it is very doubtful that he would be running a website devoted primarily to promoting his own books and pamphlets. He would thus be unlikely to make the grade in modern American evangelical world, nor would he indulge in such shameless self-promotion by calling it explicitly shameless self-promotion, as if the labored attempt at postmodern irony somehow makes the self-serving nature of such venial vanity acceptable. I suspect he would think that it actually makes it worse, adding the sin of insulting the reader's intelligence to the obvious one of shameless self-promotion. That last point is probably uh, worth half a thesis, though, hence the 9.5. The overall impact of these theses were Doc Martin with us today, he would find no easy place in the evangelical church. In fact, taxi driving might well have been a much better fit for him. <laughs> fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Great article, and you can find that at Reformation 21 at the blog of Carl Truman. If you're not sure how to find it, just Google it. It's wonderful we live in a day that you can Google it, but uh, worthy of passing along to folks and uh, worthy of definitely of a read and a mention here at Fighting for the Faith. 
All right. It is now time to do something that we have not done here at Fighting for the Faith in a long, long, long time. It is time for a sermon cage fight. Two sermons enter the octagon, and only one leaves. Now, I need to warn you, um, being that this is a Christian broadcast, um, we do not recommend that you engage in any kind of wagering. So I just want you all to know that. So for today's sermon cage fight, we will be pitting Pastor Brent Kuhlman of Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska, against David Hughes, Church by the Glades down there in Florida. The occasion is the Reformation Sunday sermon. Each of them have different texts. Pastor Kuhlman will be preaching from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. David Hughes will attempt to, <laughs> to preach something regarding vampires and dealing with people who drain you from the book of Philemon. Yeah, that tiny little one-chapter book right there in the uh, near about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. So with that, let's kill this music and uh, we'll formally get the uh, cage fight going. So uh, d- pastors, get into your corners, please. Now, just a reminder, what we're going to be looking for in our sermon cage fight today, in order to score points, Pastor must actually help us understand the biblical text that he will be preaching from. The idea is for you to leave hearing law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and pointing us to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Proper preaching of law will cause you to, well, understand that you have committed a sin and that the only solution for said sin is a crucified and risen Savior. Again, exegesis is what we're looking for. Eisegesis, or avoiding what the text actually says, will, well, cause you to lose points. So with that, the first pastor up today is Brent Kuhlman, and he's got, he's got a, tell you, this is like the most relevant sermon title I've ever seen from a Lutheran pastor. The name of it is The Reformation of S and F Words. Talk about edgy. Yeah. Talk about audacious. Now, before we get into uh, Pastor Kuhlman's uh, sermon, I will have to read for you the biblical text because in a Lutheran context, the gospel is actually read prior to the sermon, not during it. So, again... No wagering. Just you, you got to keep this above board here. I don't. I don't want to get any emails from people saying that I'm promoting betting and gambling and stuff like that. So, all right, let's kill the music and uh, let, here is um, the Gospel of John, chapter eight, verses thirty-one through thirty-six. This forms the basis of Pastor Kuhlman's sermon. Here we go. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, "If you abide in my word." You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So they answered him, We're offspring of Abraham, 
and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here's Brent Kuhlman, first up in our sermon cage fight, and his sermon entitled The Reformation of S and F Words. Here we go. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Well, did you just catch what the preacher preached, namely Jesus? I mean, on all days like this? I mean, it was really quite disgusting, wasn't it? Outrageously audacious. I mean, who does this preacher named Jesus think he is? How dare he? I mean, seriously. I mean, haven't you had enough of this? When will he ever learn? We warned him never to preach like that. You can't preach like that in church these days. Someone call the district president. Someone call the authorities. He can't get away with preaching like this anymore. After all, preacher Jesus had the gall once again to get up in the pulpit and insult you to your face. In fact, he rudely ratcheted up his preaching today in John 8. You came to get something out of church tonight, but preacher man Jesus slipped in some of the most vulgar, nastiest language you've ever heard. Your ears are bleeding. Your teeth are grinding. Your hands are clenched. And your feet are stomping. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because preacher man Jesus spewed the most poisonous and venomous words that begin with an S. S words that make you want to wretch. S words that hack you off and make you want, wants to make you want to run out of here just screaming. Preacher man Jesus had the nerve to call you Slaves. And not just any kind of slaves, but slaves to sin. As if you live on a plantation and are enslaved to a master called sin. Are you ready to revoke preacher Jesus' call to serve as your pastor? Well, of course you are. You don't want to hear that you are a slave, let alone that you are a slave to sin. Slaves! Ha! We are Americans. We are slaves to no one. We are enslaved to nothing. So let's take a vote right now, shall we? Let's put this preacher in his place. Is there a motion? Now, we're going to pause here for a second. We do this during sermon cage fights on the good sermons. What he's doing here is he's literally creating a little bit of a drama to illustrate what's really going on in the text. So he's spot on with the text. I just want to point this out to you, okay, so that you don't think he's on a tangent. Okay, let me read this again. The Jews, uh, the, the, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are offspring of Abraham and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay. So here's the thing is, is that you read a little bit more in this text. I'll just skip ahead to verse 39. Watch this. It says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham were, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. So this is what he's playing out. The, the bigger context of this gospel, he's contemporary, contemporary, uh, you know, I can't even come up. He's contemporizing it. <laughs> Yeah, just somehow the word didn't work. But you understand what he's bringing it up to date and he's putting Jesus, this preacher, in our midst and really demonstrating the offense of what Jesus has said. This is a fine, fantastic, and very smart and powerful way to exegete this text. You could do it academically or as Brent is doing here, he's going to play this out and it's going to hit a little too close to home for a lot of folk. We continue to forbid preacher Jesus from ever using those naughty S-words in our midst again? Ah, so moved. Is there a second? Thank you. Now, it's been moved and seconded that we will no longer allow preacher Jesus to use sin and slaves to sin in his preaching because that's just way too toxic. We will, we will simply refuse to listen to those words. We will not let words like that remain in our church. Any discussion? Oh, well, hearing none, all those in favor of the motion, please signify by raising your right hand and saying yes. All those opposed? Oh, the ayes have it. Well, what's that? Oh, you, you, you want to make another motion? Well, all right, what is it? Oh, very well. Hmm. It's been moved to uh, strike the previous adopted motion and to replace it with another. Uh, what was that new motion again back there? Oh, yes, that's right. Thank you. The motion is to get rid of this preacher who thinks that he's better than us. Not just to revoke his divine call, but rather to hand him over to the authorities as a criminal as a federal and hate crimes criminal who deserves capital punishment for using the banned S-words from the pulpit. Is there a second? Thank you. Any discussion? Oh, yes, sir. You come up to the microphone. Will you please speak up now? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I speak in favor of this motion. I was so offended by what the preacher Jesus said today. Uh, I'm not a sinner, and I'm certainly not a slave to sin. That's just outrageous, Mr. Chairman. It is so irresponsible for any preacher to say such a thing. I came here to be uplifted and affirmed. After all, we're good people. And so if I have my way, Mr. Chairman... I wouldn't give this preacher the electric chair or lethal injection. He deserves something worse than that. Something crueler. Something more unusual. Yes, Mr. Chairman, let's insist incessantly beat the living tar out of him and then hammer him to a pole, hang him there, and leave him to die. That'll teach him, and it will serve as a clear warning to any other preacher's who entertain any thoughts about calling us and, oh, I can hardly bring myself to verbalize the malicious words, sinners or slaves to sin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. All those in favor of the new motion. 
Oh, it's unanimous. The eyes have it. Wonderful. Whew. I thought for a brief moment that you'd let this scandalous S-word preacher skate. Oh, Mr. Secretary, please call the religious and secular authorities. Oh, you already have. Oh, great. Now make sure also that a warrant is put out for the preacher's arrest. Set up the trial and let's get the judicial wheels moving as quickly as possible. We can't be having any more preachers like him ever in the church. May I have a motion to adjourn? So moved, we stand adjourned. Well, well, you've had your way. Jesus was given over to the authorities. He was sent to the gallows. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, the governor. And the bloody and brutal crucifixion was carried out. But right before he died, it was reported that he preached another sermon. He couldn't help himself. And if you thought his preaching was scandalous before, your ears won't believe what he preached from the cross. It's been fact-checked, and it is true. Here's what he proclaimed from his parched, swollen, blood-spattered lips. An F-word, of all things. The most powerful F-word the world has ever heard. Listen. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He absolved you. He forgave you. And His forgiveness is God's forgiveness. Lo and behold, his absolution, his absolution exposes you for who you really are. When Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, it means that you are exactly what he said you are, slaves. Slaves to sin. Living in a penitentiary, a prison house of death. Do you get it? Jesus wouldn't forgive you unless you are, <clears throat> yes, that's right, <clears throat> um, a sinner. A sinner enslaved to master sin, living on the plantation called the kingdom of darkness. You were so sure that Jesus didn't have a clue. You were so sure that he was the heretic, that he was the troublemaker. But the fact of the matter is this. You and I, we didn't have a clue about ourselves and about our sinful condition. And that's precisely why Jesus came, to forgive sinners, of whom you and I qualify and are the worst. He came to free sinners. So here's the good news. Jesus doesn't hold any of your sin against you. He simply refuses to. Why? Here's why. Because he carried it all in his body on the cross. And there he answered for every bit of it. All of its punishment. All of its damnation. Jesus became maximum sinner as he insisted on taking all of our sin in his body on the cross. What is your sin? Name it. Is it big? Is it little? Is it chronic? Is it once in a while? What sin do you love to do? 
What sin do you hate the most? Now, there's the sin that you know quite well. You're quite familiar with it. And there's the sin in your life that you don't even realize that you do it. There's the sin that won't let you sleep at night. There's the sin that has ruined your life and your sin that has hurt so many people in your life, including a preacher that you self-righteously sent to the gallows. And yet Jesus dares to pray, Father, forgive them. (laughs) And after his resurrection, he mandates that pastors in the church forgive sinners. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And you are. You are forgiven because Jesus is the blood-stained mercy seat where God himself meets with sinners to proclaim, I absolve you. I forgive you. I don't count any of your sin against you. That's the truth. All your sin belongs to Jesus. Your sin does not belong to you anymore. Seriously. Seriously. Jesus doesn't joke about these things. This is no farce. He's answered for all your sin, every bit of it, every last bit of it. He's left no sin or any sinner out of his Good Friday death. He gave his life in death for you. So, you know, how does faith talk then? What does faith say about all this? Faith gives its hearty amen to what Jesus says, namely his outrageous, his extravagant, and his reckless word of forgiveness. You are forgiven is what Jesus gives you to believe, to abide in, to remain in, to rest in. If you abide in my word, he says in the text, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, Jesus is going to dare to preach again in just a few minutes. He will flood you and he will free you with even more of his forgiveness. It's just overflowing. He has more forgiveness than you've got sin. And with his words, he gives you what he promises. His Good Friday body, his Good Friday blood. Eat and drink. And Jesus tells you, I promise you, he says, I promise you, you are forgiven. (laughs) There's that S word again. Sin, you know. And where there's an S word, there's an F word. And where there's a sinner, a slave to sin, there's forgiveness of sins. And with the forgiveness word, there's another S word going on. It's capital S word, Savior. Savior Jesus, who reigns among sinners with his divine word, setting you free from the prison house of sin and death, putting you in the family or kingdom of his forgiveness, life, and salvation. What's that? Uh, Did I hear a motion that we celebrate this Reformation Sunday every Sunday and every day of our life by abiding and remaining and resting and living in Christ's word of forgiveness? (laughs) Of whom you and I are qualified? Well, all those in favor, please give your amen. Ah, it's unanimous then. Capital S Savior Jesus has had his say over the other S words. Good thing. For when the Son of Man sets you free, 
you are free indeed. Or, when the Son forgives you, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. I need to take a break. That was fantastic. Comforting and exactly what I needed to hear. Second part of our sermon cage fight on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back with David Hughes' attempt at winning the sermon cage fight. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of the sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices right down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs okay we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith we're going to be continuing with our sermon cage fight going down to coral springs florida Pitting two Reformation Day sermons against each other. All right, number two for our sermon cage fight 
comes from uh, Coral Springs, Florida. This is uh, David Hughes of Church by the Glades, and his sermon supposedly on the uh, the book of Philemon called How to Hug a Vampire, um, Dealing with the Drainers, Dealing with the Drainers. How to Hug a Vampire, Dealing with the Drainers. Here's David Hughes. Well, what is up, Church by the Glades? Hey, give it up one more time for our creative team and the great job they do, kind of energizing this house. All right. What you can't see because this is radio is that the uh, stage of Church by the Glades, they've got a hearse on stage with some kind of uh, television monitor inside one of the windows making a guy look like he's raising out of the coffin. they got spider webs everywhere. There's a coffin on stage. Obviously, they're going with a Halloween theme for... This sermon, and again, How to Hug a Vampire, Dealing with Drainers. Here we go. And uh, if you're a guest, if you're a guest, uh, guilty. We like to have fun in church. We like to have fun in church, and we think church should be a very compelling and creative environment. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why. This is kind of at Church by the Glades, kind of a more of a kid-friendly weekend. And uh, last night, we had Trunk or Treat, and uh, we gave away fast passes if people came to church with their guests. Oh, my. They, they This room was full. And it was full, and we had like 800 kids in the house, too. So uh, what we want to do, too, we want, to do, we want church to be engaging and joyful for the whole family. Like my mom and dad go to this church. My mom and dad. My dad's 85. Mom's 81. And they come to two services every weekend, or they'll come to five if I say something nice about them. Anyways, they're very faithful. And as a kid, we did church. We did church. There was no ifs, ifs ands, or buts. We were a church-going family. And I went to a great church. As a little boy, my church was a biblically-based church, solid leadership, great, great church. But as a kid, little punk kid, sometimes I was bored in church. It wasn't relevant. Church, when you, when you say, David defined exciting, I didn't think church. We want church to be a wonderful, creative punch in the... So he didn't like it. He didn't like church. It wasn't, it wasn't exciting for him. He wasn't entertained. So he's now set out to make church entertaining. And relevant and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not sure what this has to do with the book of Philemon. Yes, sorry. He's losing points already. Face. We want children of all ages from 8 to 108 to come and be engaged by the energy in God's house. So this weekend, a little extra creativity because especially tonight, we'll have a whole bunch of families in the room again. And it is Halloween week, and we like to put on our spooky and scary every once in a while and just have fun with that. And we're doing a series, if you're new, called How to Hug a Vampire. Our subtitle, Dealing with the People Who Suck the Life Out of You. And right, we all have that person, right? We all have that person. I'm not sure why they kind of suck the life out of you, why they are a life-sucking vampire. Maybe, maybe they have bad manners. Maybe they have bad hygiene. Maybe they're a personal space invader. Uh, maybe they're kind of malicious. Maybe they always have an agenda. Maybe they always are about themselves. You with me? Man, all kinds of people like that. Just maybe they're difficult, crabby, hard. To, oh, my goodness, vampire people. Now, here's what we're trying to do is balance two big ideas. Because as a Christian, under the authority of Scripture, the Bible teaches I need to love everybody. My king said, uh, said love your neighbor. But he also said, he said, love your enemy. I mean, love those tough-to-love people. You know, the Bible teaches I should love God. I should love my family. I should love my friends, be a very loyal, loving person. But also love the difficult, tough-to-love people. So how do I honor God's Word and love everyone? But at the same time, I don't think I have to grant full access to my life to vampires. 
So, okay, I don't think I have to grant full access to my life for vampires. Okay, just make a note of this here if you're keeping score. Uh, does the Bible actually say this in the book of Philemon? Is this a valid part of that text? You know, is, is he going to be faithfully showing us in the Bible how we don't have to grant access to vampires into our life? We're talking about an idea how you navigate difficult people because I found in my life the most successful, effective people have a highly developed sense of relational skills. So here's a principle. If you missed the first couple of weeks, if you missed you know, week number one, as we launched a series, I had a principle. If you, last week, as Corey preached, young punk preacher, wow. It is not fair to be that young and that good. What a great job he did. But, you know, we, we kind of brought up a principle. And here it is. If you missed the first two weeks, this is going to rock your world. This principle is kind of the big thesis statement for the series, How to Hug a Vampire. And get ready. Get ready. This principle is so powerful, your brain's going to explode when you see this. Right here it is. It says, right, right? Vampires live in houses with moats and walls. But healthy people live in houses with gates and fences. Um... This is in the book of Philemon? Vampires live in houses with moats and walls. Healthy people live in houses with gates and fences. The Bible teaches this for real? If you missed the last two weeks, you're going, seriously, that's your big principle? That's, that's all you got? Something about the way vampires construct their homes? What, what is That's not helping. Well, let me explain what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say here. Uh, vampires, you know, if you see a story about a vampire, a movie about a vampire, what do they do? They, they live in a castle, live in a haunted house, and around the haunted house is a giant stone wall or, 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 or moat or moat, you know. And I would define it a moat. If you have a moat around your house, that is clearly... Hey guys, light my plexi. Can you light my? Yeah, that he's written the word barriers on a piece of plexiglass. It's like, oh, woohoo! Is that cool? All right, that those are barriers. Those are barriers. Those are barriers. Right, right. Do any of you all have a neighbor with a moat? <laughs> I, I live in a housing tract in the suburbs of North East Indianapolis. Um, yeah, I think our CTCRs don't allow us to have moats. Yeah, so not seeing the relevant connection there. Although we do have retention ponds here in Indiana. Anybody here with a moat around your house? Moat with like crocodiles? Moat? Moat? Sharks? Crocodiles? No, don't raise your hand because if you have a moat, you're weird. That's overkill. That's paranoid. You don't need that. That's a barrier. And, and Jesus was all about eradicating barriers. Jesus lived in... Jesus was, <laughs> was about eradicating moats? Huh? <laughs> what was a very segmented society. It was a sexist, racist, prejudiced, hate-filled society. It was socially expected for you to hate other people. All these barriers and walls between people. And the New Testament is all about tearing down those walls, eradicating those barriers. Really? <laughs> I thought the big barrier that Jesus was all about tearing down was the barrier of hostility between mankind and God. Which, by the way, we were the ones who incited that hostility. We launched... We sided with the devil. Oh, man. Jesus did. There was a wall of sin between us and God. And on the cross, he tore down that wall. He busted through that barrier. Barriers. Yeah, that's true. Are bad. We're about the eradication of barriers. Amen. 
Uh, I think David Hughes is flailing here in the uh, Sermon Octagon. I'm not sure if he's going to emerge alive from this uh, encounter. Say it with me. Barriers are bad. Barriers are bad. So if you have a moat, you're weird. Don't have a moat. But a lot of normal people have, have gates and fences, right? Now, raise your hand. Who, who lives in a gated community or you have like a little fence around your house? Anybody at all? Anybody? A lot of hands. These are not weird people. That's okay. That's okay. You know, I think these would not be barriers. I would define these. So healthy people live in gated communities and they have fences. Um, does that, well, if you, if you live in a, a, you know, a gated community or you have a fence rather than a moat, and that, that means you're a healthy person. I guess that would mean we don't need Jesus, right? Because you've just declared them all healthy. Jesus himself said that he didn't come for the well. He came for the sick, you know, for the sinner. So you hear you're declaring anybody who has, well, uh, you know, lives in a gated community or use fences and stuff like that, that those people are okay. Those barriers are all right and that they're healthy. Simply as, as, say it with me, boundaries, boundaries. And boundaries can be beautiful. Barriers are bad, but proper relational boundaries, clearly drawn in the right places, can be a source of harmony. You sure that the epistle of Philemon, written by the Apostle Paul, makes the distinction between boundaries and barriers? You you really... Okay. ...can bring about relational peace in your life. So this is three weeks about how you love everybody, even the vampire people of your life, but how you establish proper boundaries. And again, I propose the most effective people in the world have a highly developed relational skill set. Example, I want to show you someone in the Bible. Turn to the book of Philemon. Turn to the book of Philemon. Say it name with me. Philemon. Not, no, 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 sir. Not Philemon. 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 And you go, okay, where is Philemon? Where is, where is, it's easy. It's right after Titus. Go ahead and find Philemon. That didn't help, did it? All right. Um, it's in the New Testament. It's a little tiny book. It's a single chapter. And here's a hint, because we do start TMI. Next week, TMI is going to be so fun. TMI, TMI is going to, I'm really excited about this series. This is a series that God laid on my heart really a couple years ago. I've been trying to find the right time to teach this series. And so it's going to be fun. But if you have a smartphone, there's a free app called, uh, it's called YouVersion. YouVersion. Man, it is so good. Uh, it, it's, you got it, you got it on your, yeah. If you have that version, it has all these different translations of the Bible. You can go from one to the. What a name for a Bible, version. I wonder who that's about. Next, like this, it is so cool. It costs nothing. So be smart with your smartphone and download that app. And more and more of our people are using that app as they study God. You can take notes. In fact, I like it in the morning. There's even the audio Bible on there. So this morning as I'm making my, my guacamole omelet. Uh, I, I put on Mark chapter 4, and I'm listening to this guy with this, Tim, this great voice like this, narrating what Jesus did in Mark chapter 4. I mean, it's awesome, free. So download that, if you will, you version on your smartphone or your iPad or a paper Bible. It's all good, but we're in the book of Philemon. Say it again, Philemon. All right, let me give you a little backdrop here because you're going to hear some weird names, but I think I can make it all clear. Who are the players in Philemon? There are three. Number one, of course, there's Philemon. Now, Philemon was a Christian. He's a Christ follower, and he's probably a leader in his ancient church, and also he's a slave owner. You recall the Roman world was a very much a slave society. About half the population of Rome during the time of, of Jesus were slaves, all right? So he's, he's a guy that owns some slaves, evidently. Then there's a guy named, with a weirder name than Philemon is Onesimus. Onesimus. Say it with me. Onesimus. You tried teaching this one with 800 kids in the room last night, all right? Onesimus. So we have Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave. Once upon a time, he was the legal property 
of Philemon. So this guy ran away. And when he ran away, he stole something. He stole something probably to fund his escape. He stole some property from Philemon. So Philemon and Onesimus. Say it with me. Philemon and Onesimus. So you got all that. If that's too complicated, just call him Phil and O if need be. All right? So we have Phil and O. And then this third guy, you'll know it's Paul. And I would argue Paul is one of the most impactful and successful and effective people ever to live. I'd say the greatest Christian of all time. Of course, he was a pastor and a magnificent missionary. And here's the cool thing. He knows both these guys. So to cut to the story quickly, um, you know, Onesimus runs away. And he runs away to Rome. Great play to hide out if you're a slave. And isn't it cool sometimes you're on the run in life? You're, you're paranoid. I mean, he's, he's being hunted by slave hunters who are very active in the ancient world. Uh, he, he's always looking over his shoulder. He has no peace. Sometimes in that time of life, God will put the right person at the right time in your life to make the right. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, if you uh, have those times in your life when you're on the run, apparently, you know, you're on America's most wa- wanted. <laughs> okay. Right decisions of all the thousands of people in Rome that Onesimus could admit, he, he runs right into Paul. And they form a friendship. And Paul wins him to Christ. Onesimus gives his heart to Jesus. And he begins to mentor him and love on him. And Onesimus begins to assist Paul in ministry. But Onesimus has no peace because he's a wanted man. I mean, he's always afraid the slave hunters will capture him, right? He's always afraid they will hurt him. And so he says, Paul, what do I do? I have no peace. I know Jesus, but I have no circumstantial peace. What narrative are you reading from? It sounds like you're making stuff up about Onesimus. You're just kind of assuming that this would be true of him. I don't recall the Onesimus narrative being anywhere in the New Testament. And Paul says, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, I know, I know Philemon. You're a former athlete. How great is God? I happen to know that guy. And uh, maybe you need to make things right with him. You need to go to him, make things right. Oh, man. (laughs) Totally have to take off points here. Uh, I mean, seriously, like we're negative points now uh, for the Sermon Cage fight because he's like inventing his own biblical narrative i mean the creative sure innovative yes faithful to the biblical text far from it yeah you lose points when you start making up your own bible stories in fact he says, i'll write you a letter i'll write you a letter of introduction i'll try to be a go-between i'll be a peacemaker here and, and the holy spirit has sought to preserve for us as sacred scripture that letter is the book of philemon one short chapter so what happens in this Paul is going to ask Philemon for a bunch of stuff. He's going to ask on behalf of Onesimus. He's going to ask for a bunch of... He's going to go for a big ask. Big, big ask. He's going to ask three things. Three things. He's going to ask, number one, that that Philemon would receive and welcome Onesimus. You still with me? Number two, that he'd be kind to Onesimus. By the way, very, very countercultural right there. Because in the ancient world, if you happen to recapture a slave, you were not kind to them. If you recaptured a slave, typically what you do is you would torture them to death. Trying to send a message to other slaves, right? But guess what? The Christian faith has never been cultural. Typically, we're countercultural. And by the way, here's if you're a cop in the slavery thing, you know the first place in the ancient world where slaves and slave owners were equal. (laughs) (laughs) That is like totally like an insult of my intelligence. David Hughes talking about how Christianity is countercultural. He's got his church decked out for Halloween. They've got 
tombstones, they've got a hearse, they've got smoke machines, spider webs, and he's talking a theme called How to Hug a Vampire, and he has the audacity to say that Christianity is countercultural. Good night. I mean, seriously, I, at this point, I mean, pardon the uh, the metaphor here, but he's in bed with the culture. He's sleeping with it while claiming that Christianity is countercultural. He's having a full-blown affair with the culture while claiming that Christianity is countercultural. Sorry, you lost more points again there, David. You're not doing very well against uh, Brent. You know, Brent, you know, his, his sermon, what, 12, 13 minutes? And we're we're at the ten minute twenty seven uh, second mark for this sermon that for the sermon cage fight, you've lost all kinds of points. You've invented your own biblical narrative. <laughs> then you claim the church is countercultural in a church that's completely in bed with the culture. Good night. <laughs> Can't wait to hear what the what else you do. Schools the church. The first century church in that slave society was the first place where slaves and their masters were brothers in Christ. In fact, many of the churches in the ancient world, like the church at Corinth and the church in Rome, had to have their meetings at night because most of the members were slaves. And the slaves had to finish their chores and duties. But you might have a church. Do you have historical proof for that? That's the first time I've ever heard that. Now, I, listen, I don't claim to have read everything regarding the ancient church, but that's the first time I've heard that, yeah, the ancient church, they had to have night church because there were so many slaves. Okay. Church, where here is the slave, and here's the slave owner, and now they're both Christians, and maybe the slave is the pastor, and the slave masters under the leadership and authority of the slave. You see, God hates barriers. Yeah, you said it twice now, um, but he's okay with, uh, with borders. You know, um, it's not barriers. Yeah, barriers are bad, but you got boundaries. He, he's okay with boundaries, but not border uh, barriers. Yeah, are you sure that's in Philemon? So Paul's going to write a letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. So you think he's your slave? I think slavery's stupid. And uh, I, I think he's your brother, and you should honor him and be kind to him. And by the way, third thing he asked Paul, because he's going for a big ask. He says, by the way. I think you should. I know he's your legal property. I By the way, it was uh, Perry Noble who <clears throat> pioneered the whole big ask thing. I think you should send Onesimus back to me. Not as my slave or servant, but as my colleague. He's helped me do ministry here. And I know he's your, your property. It's like an economic thing here. But, but you should send him back to me. The big ask, all right? Look, some, people, some people are vampires because they just ask you for stuff all the time. Anyone like that? I mean, they always, always have that agenda, always like looking out for themselves. They just ask you, to ask you for stuff. That, right? I know someone said once upon a time, it never hurts to ask. That's not true, is it? You had someone ask you for something like, oh, that's inappropriate. That, that's, 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 that's awkward, right? And, and so Paul is asking for a lot. I mean, Paul's saying, do this, do this. He's asking. He's going for the... Is there any particular reason why you're not actually reading? I mean, if, if you're going to preach on Philemon, good night. It's like... A chapter long. It's about the length of a short letter. Let, in fact, let me read it. I think this will help. <clears throat> Here, let me. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Paul's writing this from prison. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our um, fellow soldier, and the church in your house. By the way, um, Philemon lives in Colossae. All right, we continue. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh. Yeah, yeah. By the way, a little bit of a heads up. I'm going to depart here for for a second. Tomorrow, uh, f- for our celebration of Reformation Day, we're going to be sending out links to some Reformation resources for free for you. One of them is uh, is uh, uh, Roland Bainton's book "Here I Stand." That's uh, the it's a it's a biography of the life of Luther. In fact, I'm convinced it's the best and most definitive biography on the life of Martin Luther. But the other thing we're going to be sending out is a link for you if you own a Kindle or a smartphone or an iPad and you have the Kindle software and Android and you have the Kindle software, um, a link for you to download a free copy of Martin Luther's commentary on uh, Galatians. It's it's just spectacular. And uh, in it, when in Galatians, there's also, Paul says, grace and peace to you. And Luther goes on at length to discuss how grace and peace uh, that this is only comes as a result of what Christ has done for us on the cross and this is uh, the grace and peace that comes from God and he just goes on and on about Jesus about this but uh, so anyway Paul here in Philemon says grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and here's the the heart of the letter I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So say nothing of your owing me or even of your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Great little letter. Hmm. Okay. First off, I didn't see anything about God hating um, barriers. Did you recall anything when I was reading Philemon about God hating barriers? No, I didn't see anything in there. Um, how about God like uh, being okay with boundaries? Didn't see that in the text either. Um, 
what I saw there was beautiful, beautiful sanctification played out in light of the cross and the wonderful uh, idea of a bondservant being a fellow brother in Christ as a result of, well, repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, yeah, boy, um, okay, so we're a third of the way through David Hughes's entry into the Sermon Cage fight, and it's not looking good. You know, I can see the handwriting on the wall here. I don't think he's going to faithfully handle this text. It's not looking good. I, you, you can kind of see where this is heading. Not good at all. Big ask, man. Watch out for people with a big ask. Big ask people will mess you up. You with me? Am I just telling you? Big ask people will just mess you up. Turn to your neighbor and say, I hope you don't have a big ask. Don't bring your big ask to church. Ask. Enunciate. Ask. What's wrong with you guys? How does this help us understand this biblical text? I don't think it does. Ask. Big ask. But some people, man, they just ask and ask and ask. Keep in mind, he hasn't read a single verse yet. But let me tell you, this is a very important relational insight right here. But it was cool in this, this case because Paul could ask because first he had invested so much in Philemon. We're going to find out that Paul actually won Philemon. How, how cool is this? Philemon also to Christ. They live in different cities. He won Philemon to Christ. He mentored Philemon. He poured into Philemon. He encouraged Philemon. They had this great relationship. When you have a great relationship with someone, when you poured into someone, guess what? Then it's cool to ask. I hope my, my friends that pour into my life, if they need anything, they would let me know it. And by the way, Paul's not asking for himself. He's asking for Onesimus. And when you have a good relationship, you have both the flow both ways. It's that give and receive. It's not give and take. It's give and receive. We see that happen time and time again. And, and so it's cool to ask. Example, who's the most generous person in the universe? That would be God. I mean, God's not just gracious and loving and forgiving. He's generous. In fact, I would argue every good thing you have in your life, the singular source is God. Everything. Everything you have. Everything that you count, that you value, that you esteem, everything that matters to you, everything you think is cool, everything, it all came as a blessing from God. Somebody right now, you almost want to stand up and argue with me and go, oh, no, listen, listen, no disrespect to God, but I worked hard. David, I worked hard. I worked hard. I went to school. I got myself an education, got myself a master's degree. I worked hard in my class. I went, man, I took advantage of my opportunities in the marketplace, in business. Man, I worked hard. I worked 14 hours. I have nice things because I have worked hard. I'm, I'm a self-made man. I would say, seriously? You, you did good in school? Who blessed you with your brains? Who blessed you with opportunity? Who placed you in the U.S., the greatest country in the world, where there's a plethora of opportunity? Who has given you your chances in the marketplace? Who gave you your intelligence, your discernment? Who gave you the breath in your lungs right now? These are all gifts from God. It says in James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. So if you got it and it's good, it's from God. Amen? And so God is generous. Every blessing in your life, God, it all came from God. God gave it all. Yay, God. All right, so we've got some applause lines for God, apparently. Um, when are you going to actually get to Philemon? Oh, so God gives, gives, gives. It's the nature of God. What's the most famous verse? John 3, 16. John 3, 16. Look what it says. This famous verse says, For God so loved the world that he... He's generous. <laughs> yeah, he's... <laughs> yeah, that's all about generosity, I'm sure. He gave his son. Yeah, that's what... And whoever he... believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, I, I could... All right, so that, folks... Uh, yeah, hang on a second here. If you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith for any amount of time, then you know what this sound is. 
there, folks, that was the gospel nugget. Um, we don't get that a lot in seeker-driven um, sermons anymore. So I, I'm happy to report that for this Reformation Day sermon, that, uh, <clears throat> that uh, David Hughes did get a gospel nugget in there. Yay! I mean, that's fantastic. I'm... We rarely see that anymore. We have a bunch of new people in the house this week and not bust out that verse. It's the gospel of salvation in a simple statement. But you see the heart of God? He gives, he gives, he gives, he gives, but he also asks. Yeah, just comparing, you know, gospel content. Keep in mind, Brent Kuhlman's sermon was shorter than this. I mean, at this point, we're at 14 minutes and 55 seconds. Brent's whole sermon was over a minute and a half ago. Um, but Brent, I mean, his sermon was oozing with the gospel, just like it was all over the place. He couldn't say it was a gospel nugget. It was more like a gospel 16-ounce sirloin steak. So, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you got the gospel nugget in there. That, you know, it. I can understand, you know, the pressures and all because of the sermon cage fight. But, yeah, um, it's you're coming up way short here, uh, way, way short. Read your Bible. God will ask you for stuff. God will get all up in your stuff and ask you for things. He'll ask you for uh, your faith. He'll ask you for loyalty. He'll ask you for your time. He'll ask for your energy. He'll ask for your love. He'll, I mean, he'll ask you to, to pour yourself into other people to help them, right? I mean, God, God's not above asking. God will ask you man, to give your heart to Christ and be saved today. I mean, ask, ask, ask. But it's like that flow. It's- really, you got a Bible verse that says that I'm supposed to give my heart to Christ. I can't think of a single passage that even says that. In fact, the good news of the gospel is that Christ gave himself for us. It, the gospel is not we need to give our, Jesus our heart or anything like that. Where, do you ta- where are you getting this? It's give and receive, give and receive. So Paul said, guess what, Philemon? Because you're my boy. I can ask you for these things. Uh, here's these things I want to ask you for. So we ask these big things. But again, I want to study relationships and how you manage boundaries with vampires. So You want to study relationships? Aren't you supposed to be studying the Bible? When are you going to actually read from the text? Start in verse 4. Single chapter. Did you find... <laughs> okay, so you're going to start in verse 4. <laughs> are you on a time crunch? I mean... Have you got more important things you need to be doing this morning? Is your football team playing in the afternoon? Is there any particular reason why you couldn't figure out how to wedge, like, the entire chapter into your sermon? You're going to start at verse 4. Okay. Philemon yet? Did you find Philemon yet? Hopefully you're there. All right. Verse 4. Let's just look through what Paul's saying to his friend, his friend Philemon, his brother in Christ, Philemon, because it's really neat the way this is worded, and I love taking apart the Word of God. I cannot wait for TMI. TMI, we're going to take, take apart some of the craziest passages in all the Bible. So there's a commercial for the new sermon series starting next week at Church by the Glades. Cannot wait for this one. But in Philemon chapter 4, Paul says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Man, I pray for you, bro. I love you. I pray for you. I lift you up to God, the Lord. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all believers, all the saints, I pray that you be active in sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Verse 7. I love, verse 7 is the bomb. Here we go. Look at verse 7. Get ready to read. Your love has given me great... Okay, that was all right. We'll try it again. Let's try it again. It's early. It's early. All right. And I just so you're going to not focus on the, the uh, part about the things we have in Christ... And you're going to pick out the psychological relationship words in verse 7? Huh? 
yet. Your love has given me great... Oh, there you go. Great joy and... Encouragement. Because you, brother, have... Oh, one more time. Because you, brother, have... Say the word refresh. So the words you've highlighted are joy, encouragement, and refreshed. You're going to pop psychologize this, aren't you? Just again, refreshed. I mean, I love this. I mean, I, I can ask you these things. And I feel comfortable doing this because you're a joy to me. And we encourage each other in the Lord. And you, you refresh me. You refresh me. Do you know people like that that refresh you? And I mean, I like that whole idea of that word. I like if I go to someone... <laughs> Do you have people in your life that refresh you? Oh, no. Oh, this is going badly. Yeah, he's flailing. I mean, seriously, this is Mike Tyson versus Pee Wee Herman. And David Hughes is not Mike Tyson. He's bleeding badly in this sermon cage fight. His house. I sit down. They say, would you like a refreshment? Isn't that nice? Like, if you go to my mom, mom's house, at mom's house, my mom bakes, man. She's a wonderful southern baker, man. All pies and stuff. She says, would you like a refreshment? You say, yes. Or at least someone comes to your house, you offer them a, be- a beverage, right? Would you like something to drink? Would you like a refreshment? I, I, have, I have, every time I speak, I have a little cup. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us the Greek word for refreshed? I mean, that would just help us all out here, I'm sure. Up here. It's not coffee, by the way. Good night. How fast would I talk if I drink coffee while I preach? That's, that's a scary thought. It's room temperature water because I speak so much. It just kind of helps keep the pipes moist and keeps my, my voice going. But a beverage is a good thing. When I think of the word refresh, and I think about relationships, maybe beverages would be a good illustration. And TMI, I'm going to show you some things Ezekiel did, these visual aids he used. Crazy. Cray-cray illustrations. What do you see what Ezekiel does? But I think illustration helps the principle come clear sometimes. The idea of boundaries and people and not barriers. And, and so... To manage relationships successfully. I just read the entire letter of Philemon. It has nothing to do with managing relationships. How are you getting this out of this text? I must properly diagnose the person in front of me. I don't mean to judge him. We're not allowed to judge. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. All right? So not that. But when he says that, it doesn't mean we don't assess people's behavior. Never malign their motives, but assess behavior. So I've got to figure out what kind of person do I have. And I would argue every single person you meet brings a relational charge. Positive? You're getting this out of Philemon, verse 7, from the word joy, encouragement, and refreshed. Oh. Negative or kind of neutral? Are you with me? They bring a vibe. Uh, they bring life or they take life. They refresh you or they kind of de-energize you. You with me? Some people just kind of in the middle. Example, let's use beverages as this. Most people you meet, I'm going to call them just water people. Water people. Just Because I mean this, you're not with them long enough, they bring a big charge. <laughs> I don't recall anything about water people in um, Philemon. Your encounter is very brief. This is somebody you meet in the marketplace. This is somebody you pass in the campus in the, in the, in the locker room. This is, you know, this is the checkout girl, your server at a restaurant, the guy at the dry cleaner. They're kind of water people. It's brief. It's passing. It's casual. There's no rapport or relationship that there's a big charge one way or the other. But guess what? People are great. I love people. We swim in a sea of relationships in South Florida, man. There are millions of people down here. I love the fact we live in an urban center. All right? So people are good. Amen. People are good. Don't be annoyed at people. You are one. People drive me crazy. What do you think you are? Right? All right. So, so most people kind of water. Are you with me so far? So you understand most people's casual. But there are some rare individuals, if you are blessed, 
If, you, if God has been so generous that you may have some people, man, they energize you. They caffeinate you. So there's water people and then there's monster energy drink people. These are the visual aids he's using. You, oh, my God. You may have some people. They are your monsters, man. They are your magnificent monsters, not mean monsters. I'm talking monsters that are for you. They're ferocious for you. You got your monster men, I hope. Man, people like, that's what Paul's saying to Philemon. He said, bro, you're my monster. Man, you bring me joy and a- <laughs> Over contextualization, he loses more points. Encouragement, you refresh me every time I think about you. I'm a better man because you are my brother. I mean, I love you. And, and no doubt it was reciprocal. It was a give and receive relationship. A monster man is an encourager in your life. Do you have someone like this? Um, if, if you don't, uh, maybe you're confused. What exactly is a monster? I'll just say, here's what a monster really looks like. A monster is not just, he's just one of my boys. No, no, it's more than that. A monster is someone who believes in God and believes in you. Not only that, they believe in God and believe in you and they believe God has something big planned for you. Cause guess what? He does. Um, okay. So I need a monster in my life who believes in God and ha- believes that God has a big plan for me. What if I don't I don't want a big plan? What if I'm okay just, you know, being me, you know, just serving my neighbor with the um, abilities and talents that God's given me, you know? I don't know you perhaps, perhaps it's your first time here, but uh, I know certain things about you already. Never met, you don't know your name. I know that God made you and God loves you and God gave his son Jesus because God so loved the world to die for you. God is so generous that you could be saved, even saved today. And then on top of that, I think God has this thing for you, this big thing that God wants you to do. <laughs> really? Uh, you believe that God has a big thing that God wants him to do? Yeah. Um, do you have a Bible passage that says that? I don't see that in Philemon. In fact, I'm not. nothing's coming to mind here as far as any biblical passages that say that. Yeah, again, I just go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, what, verse 11, you were quietly with your hands, you know, making a living for yourself. Is that is that okay with you guys? God has this, this supernatural script for your life. God has, I love to call it a divine dream. <laughs> Romans 16, smooth talk and flattery. These are the false teachers. Yeah, buttering them up, aren't you? Wow, yeah, wow. I see somebody just wandering in off the streets who's a pagan. They're not being confronted with their sin, are they? No, not so far. Um, but but they are sure being buttered up. I mean, who? I mean, they're going on. I had no idea I was so important. Who? Yeah. Well, it's about time that somebody recognized it, like God. You know, the Bible uses the word uh, vision or purpose, but God is this big thing. Here's the cool thing: vision or purpose, really? What verses are these again, David? It's it's not one size fits all. It's customized. God has given his cosmic genius to script this plan for you. And this thing is so big. You're going to understand and process and pray through this thing that God wants you to do. It is, it is so big. It is so big you cannot pull it off by yourself. Really? Get Bible verses would help here. Um, so far we've gotten three verses of Philemon. Um, I mean, although i got to be fair, I mean, Pastor Kuhlman... You know, he he preached on what four or five verses, but he's bang up job too. Wow, um, f- yeah. Can you go back and tell us again what Philemon's about and actually exegete the passage? You seem to be off topic, and 
you uh, not only that you invented an entire Philemon narrative that isn't in the Bible, and now you're like making up stuff about you know God has a vision purpose thing. It's huge, you know, and all. And the Bible doesn't say this. I mean, do, do you are you against reading the Bible in church, or is that too boring? I mean, actually, you know, teaching it. You'll need some brothers around you. You'll need some monsters around you who will champion this thing. Who will cha- yeah, you need a posse, you know. Hear this thing. Who will resource. And you'll be so big, you'll probably, like, need a security entourage or something. This thing. I mean, every time you see someone accomplish great things in the Bible, there's an entourage. Paul had his entourage. He had Philemon. He had Silas. He had Barnabas. Man, he had these monsters with him that kept him safe, that prayed with him, that loved on him, that believed God's going to do great things with you, Paul. That's awesome. David had Jonathan. Jesus had the 12. You need those monsters in your life because God has a dream for your life that is so big. Yeah. We're like way, way into the negative. I don't think even if he were to turn it around and start exegeting from this point on, I don't think he could dig his way out of the hole that he's racked up in negative points. Good night. This is just pure mythology and fable. In fact, you know, I love talking about God's dream for your life. I'm sure you do because you don't seem to enjoy actually teaching the scriptures. I love telling my church that God has a holy habit of making dreams come true. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) This ain't Christianity. I don't know what this is. Now, clarification, not your dream. Not my dream. Why our dreams are too what? Small, too selfish. But God is a supernatural dream. That's his dream is get God-sized thing, way better than our dream. You begin to sense that, pray through that. God surrounds and resources you with people. Man, that dream's so powerful. Man, it'll move you. You got a reason to wake up in the morning, man. You got a smile on your face. It'll power. This is like the epitome of the purpose-driven heresy. This is not the Bible. This is not sound doctrine. He's not exegeting it. He's making all these statements, and they're not anchored to any, like any biblical passages. I mean, it's just like make up stuff about God and Jesus night over at uh, Church by the Glades and just invent stuff. <laughs> wow. You pass your problems. It's highly catalytic in your life. I mean, the dream of God is so, so cool. I mean, listen, we have all these families here this weekend. This place is packed with parents who love their kids. And a lot of them just brought their kids here to walk away with simple carbohydrates. But the smart ones thought, well, I want my kid to understand that God made them. I want my kid to understand that God made them and loves them and God has a dream and a plan for their life. I want my kid to be captured by God's dream. I want the dream to be so big and so strong in their life that, man, it... Again, Bible passages for this God's dream thing would be very helpful here. Um, I don't think they exist. It holds them. That's the secret. Your kids don't need more rules to live by. They need a divine dream to live for. And where will you find these monsters? Where will your kids find these monsters? It won't be probably on the campus. Or it won't be in your neighborhood. You're going to find these monster men you need in the church. And you're here at worship. That's so cool. Thank you so much for being here for this hour of worship. But the way you find them is not here. We give you like 25 seconds to fist bump somebody. You're not going to establish a meaningful relationship in that amount of time. But as you involve yourself in a ministry team. As you volunteer, as you go to a life group and get to meet some people, you're going to find someone you'll discover rapport with. That person will be your monster, energize you. i got some men in my life, man. They mean so much to me. I am who I am because they pour into me. They energize me and caffeinate. They are my monster men. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need a monster. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need a monster. And by the way, if you're here and you're married, Lisa is my monster. She's my monster woman. 
But I mean, I mean, be on your spouse, be on your spouse. Some friends to encourage you. Are you with me? All right, so we have three kinds of people. I got two. Some are just water people, not with them long enough to have a big charge. But, oh, if you're blessed, you got some monsters that caffeinate you. Then finally, finally, you got that other kind of person. That person the series is about, you got, we've been calling them a vampire because, oh, they suck the life out of you. Every, right? You know, you know what they are? I can tell you, he knows this one. If, when you see them coming, you hope they don't see you back. All right? And call them what you will. Call them a vampire or in this series, uh, uh, maybe a drainer. They drain you, right? You see them, they all, they just suck the life and energy and excitement. They, they drainers or vampires. That's the third category of person here. And they bring a negative charge to your life. They just drain you. They, they don't refresh you, right? They don't refresh you at all. <laughs> I swear, I am so close to calling the match on a technical knockout. <laughs> this is embarrassing. Whew. Poor David Hughes. I mean, putting him against Brent Kuhlman. May have been cruel and unusual. Man, it's not even close. Like Philemon refreshed Paul. Uh, they, i got to find a beverage for these people. These people, they're definitely not monsters, not even water. The, the only beverage I could think of that was fitting for the draining people in life would be... Uh, it's prune juice. The prune juice. People of life. And I just went too far for somebody. <laughs> Stay with me. Stay with me. Because listen, I want to be, be honest and, and true and relevant. And more than that, I'm being biblical. If you have an issue with that, come for TMI. I'm just being biblical. No, you're not. There's nothing biblical about this thing that you're doing. You're not exegeting Philemon at all. I'm just being, I'm downright about, you think that, oh, that's too far. No, it's not. See, if you had the U version on your phone, you could jump right now to the King James version of the Bible. And if you check out the same verse, verse 7 in the King Jimmy, look what it says here. Here's the language. Some of you guys love that lyrical language of the, the King James version. Here's what it says. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the, the bowels of the saints. Bow, that's actually what it says in the Greek. The bowels of the saints. Yeah, the splagna. It's, it's what it says in the Greek, yeah. Are refreshed by thee, brother. All right. So I'm just just because he said the bowels of the saints, which, by the way, goes back to the Greek language and the way they thought, you know, um, doesn't mean that Paul was saying that there's people who are prune juice in your life. And not only that, I mean, you're you're not even correctly handling this text at all because the Philemon is the good guy. He's not the the one who drains your bowels. You're basically trying to find a way to bring prune juice into your as a sermon illustration here of like different people because you you want to talk about relationships rather than what this text is saying. But Philemon, this is a good thing. The bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee. Okay, the King James says right. That's good, not bad. And here you're talking about the drainers in your life being the prune juice people. It, it doesn't even fit the verse you're working with. It's like the opposite of what you're saying. Saying this, some people refresh the bowels. Some people drain the bowels. Come on, we're being honest here. We're being honest here. We're doing church. Paul didn't mention mention anything about the, the 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 bowel drainers in this verse. You are doing violence to this passage. Church here, just pretty. Who has a drainer? Come on, raise your hand. Raise your hand. 
Who has a drainer in your life? Raise your hand. You've got a prune juice person, right? Raise your hand if someone comes to mind. Raise your hand. Keep them up there. Keep your hand up there. Who has a prune juice person? Raise your hand if you've got a prune juice person. Raise your hand. Every hand. Every hand. Come on, raise your hand. Some of y'all don't have your hands up. You, you might be the prune juice person. You, you, might, you might be. We're all trying to figure out how to navigate you, you vampire, right? So, uh, they're out there. They're out there. Now, again, here is the balance of Scripture. We're called to love everyone. But I'm going to restrict access to my life of vampire people or they would diminish the dream that God has placed in me. They'll kind of oh, you have got to be kidding me. Serious. That is just utter blasphemy. Got to restrict access of the vampire people because they'll diminish the dream that God has put in me. Not a single passage of Scripture says any of that. It's just narcissistic and evil. Suck the energy out of me for that. So you've got to find that, that biblical balance on how to do these things. You with me? Because here's, here's what I think you do. Here's what I think you do. Uh, three kinds of people. Neutral charge, positive charge, negative charge. Uh, and the great many people in a busy day you'll encounter, the water people. Here's what you do. You don't have enough time to bring, to bring about significant ministry. I think for those, if, I, if it's you know, a server, if it's someone at the register at the mall, you know, someone, but whatever it is, I, I want to be polite to them. I want to be kind and respectful. I like to be just for even a moment. That's great now, but what on earth does this have to do with Philemon? One of the nicest moments of their day. If you're a Christian, I would just warn you, don't complain about service too often. You know, don't be negative and grumpy out there. Don't be demanding out there. Guess what? That's not our agenda. Man, you be, you be polite in South Florida, you stand out. Just saying, all right? So be kind. And by the way, if you're a Christian person here and part of this church, uh, let me show you verse 6 again. Verse 6 is a cool thing. Paul says, hey, this is a neat thing you do, Philemon. This says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Well, he's saying, you have this habit, you share your faith. And guess what, church? Can I just brag on you? You do a great job inviting people. You're going to take a bunch of those business cards for TMI, and you're going to invite people to the house next week. And you're not weird about it, but most... This is like the third time he's mentioned next week's sermon series that begins on Sunday, TMI, or maybe Saturday. Um, by the way, giving a an invitation to people to come to a seeker-driven church because of a sermon series is not the same as proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name or sharing the Christian faith with somebody who is an unbeliever. Two very different things. And here's the deal. Based on what I'm hearing here, if uh, an un unsaved unbeliever shows up at church by the glades, they're not going to be they're not going to hear the biblical gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They're going to be taught Pop psychological narcissistic eisegesis. This is a mess. Whew. I mean, seriously, Kuhlman is mopping the floor with you, Hughes. People I invite are those water people. I'm just meeting for a moment. You know, I, I try not to be weird, but I try to say, hey, I, I go to a great church. I never tell them I'm the pastor. Never tell them that. But I love when they show up and I walk over and speak. They're like, what? Right? So I never tell them that. But I just take out that card and invite them to church in a normal way. That is being active in sharing your faith. So, so that's a great thing to do. Thank you for doing that. That's so important. Um, and it's, it's such a big thing we do. So with, with water people, I want to just love them, be polite, be one of the best moments of their day. Monsters, just rejoice in them. Encourage them back. If you don't have these people, the monsters are good. Remember, those are the monster energy people, the monster energy drink people. These are the people who are your posse. 
people, you need these people, and you will find them. They believe in God. They believe in you. They believe God's a big plan for your life. You'll find them in the church. And then these people, what do you do with these people? Well, just delete them from your life. Get rid of them, right? You got to manage them. They will, they will eat your lunch. You've got to put some boundaries, a little space between them. But guess what? I don't think you delete them because I think God wants us to grow up and God wants us to be mature as we love and God wants us to get over being selfish. And God will bring one of these. God wants you. God wants you. God wants you. Boy, that's a lot of God wants you without any biblical passages showing what that's what God wants you to do. I mean, seriously, you just get to invent God's will for us. God wants you to do this. God wants you to do that. Just out of thin air. You're supposed to do that from a biblical text, David. People in your life just to help you not be so selfish. They're tough to love, right? Rick Warren calls them MGR people, more grace required people. But yeah, more grace required. Rick Warren calls them that. Huh? What does the Bible call them? You're supposed to be preaching the word. If I just have these kind of people in my life, these guys are easy to love. I don't have to be mature, Christ-like, or self, uh, selfless to love. No, they're easy. But to love someone like this, to deal with someone like this, I have to grow up and be mature. You see, as a Christian person, I should be hard to offend and a little tougher to wear out and definitely more patient than other people. In fact, can I give you guys a, a heavy principle I couldn't give last night because I had like a gasquillion kids in the room? Uh, one of the cool things that happens is when you come to Jesus is uh, the old you dies. Now, a new man comes to live. New man, new woman in the image of Christ. But the old you dies. And guess what? That's okay to have a funeral for me because the old me could be a jerk. I told you my worst vampire I deal with is me. And and the non-Christian me, very, very, very self-centered. Very, very self-centered. Me, 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 me. Always on my mind. Yeah. Here's the irony. Who is this sermon about? Well, about you. I mean, God has a big plan for you. You got to limit access from the you know to your life of the prune juice people because they'll eat away at the dream that God has for you. Does He not see that? He, I mean, He's guilty of the very thing that He's preaching against right now in the same sermon. It's like schizophrenia. And that person, one of the things that happens the moment you're saved, you need to be saved today. You're qualified for heaven. Your sins are forgiven. You're adopted in the royal family of God. The Holy Spirit of God comes to reside in you. He brings the spiritual gift. I mean, all the fruit, all those things become yours. But one thing happens in that transaction. It's, it's so profound, the tra- transaction, transformation, that the old me dies. Homework, check out Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. It talks about the symbolism and believer's baptism. See, if you have that app, you now... Oh, it just talks about baptism, what, hap- what God does to us in our baptism, yeah. And find it quickly. It says in the first couple of verses, I'll just quote it for you. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say? Shall we continue to sin and be selfish that grace might abound? Paul's kind of dealing with the question that they're wrestling with in the Roman church. Should we just sin and be selfish and stupid that God might forgive us and be gracious? And he says, no, God forbid, how shall we who've been freed from sin... Live any longer therein. And he says, verse 3, Know you not that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Say the word death. 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 Am I losing you? I'll take you to one verse. One verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 7, kind of sums it up. As a Christian person, Paul says, here's the reality. It's not a metaphor, not embellishment. Here's the reality. Because guess what? The old me, who has to be honored and the center of attention and right all the time. The old me... Okay, can I ask the obvious question? He just said this isn't a metaphor, that it's a reality. Then why is it that he doesn't preach this as the reason for people to be baptized? Hmm? 
says, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Seems like an appropriate verse for the series for some reason. About death and he's saying the old me dies, the old me dies, and, and, and when the old me, the old selfish me dies, guess what? Some of those things used to annoy me and bother me and frustrate me don't bother me anymore. Dead people are freed from sin. Ever notice that dead people are very patient? <laughs> dead people are nearly impossible to offend. Dead people cue sappy music. The sappy music, by the way is a method to create the illusion that God the Holy Spirit is now working through the crowd and you know having you know getting getting people to get serious about decisions they need to make and things like that. It's a form of manipulation. More points lost for that by the way, David. People never have a long list of relational expectations. Dead people never feel entitled, do they? Never. Never. Dead people experience zero relational frustration. And the Bible, this is not embellishment. The Bible's saying, guess what? In Christ, the old me is, is dead. He is, he is dead. He is dead. You see, if you don't embrace this fact, what is your hope of relationship contentment? I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> what? So I need to embrace the fact that I'm dead in Christ because of my baptism so that I can experience relationship contentment? <laughs> I feel like I'm watching an episode of The Twilight Zone. Your hope is this. You're hoping that everyone at all times will understand, acknowledge, esteem, and prioritize your preferences and your relational needs. Good luck with that. I have no idea what you're talking about. On the other hand, if I understand that in Christ, I'm dead to all that and dead men are free from sin. To be content in relationships, I don't have to be right. I don't have to be honored. I don't have to be preferred. I don't have to come first. I just let people be people and love them in Jesus' name. See, this is a heavy concept. Are you, are you feeling me here? What the Bible is saying is, what? what does this have to do with Philemon? There's this new thing that's happened. There's a new man who lives in the image of Jesus. Always loving, always kind, always understanding. Dealt with his vampires. I mean, the Pharisees, Corey talked about the Pharisees were vampires. He loved them differently. Put boundaries there. But man, if we follow the image of Christ, the old... <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> Which of the gospel writers tell us about the boundaries that Jesus set up to, for the Pharisees? <laughs> I mean, serious. This, this guy has got his own Bible. It's got stuff in his... There's stuff in his Bible that ain't in nobody's Bible. Me dead, a new man alive. You see, if you're dead, you're free break it down for you this way. Vampires are the undead. Zombies are the walking dead. But Christians are dead men walking. Because Christ has set us free. Well, yeah. Last series, I showed you one of the most profound verses. Yeah, that's true, I guess. All the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, here's the transformation. It is so profound. Here's the great exchange that happens. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, he's what? He tries harder. Uh, more resolve. No, no. He is what? A new creature. You have morphed. You have changed. There's, there's somebody new. The old things, again, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And there's new life. It is so powerful. A new life in Jesus. Somebody looking for a fresh start? Looking for something new? God is here waiting for you. I'm going to pray. 
And then you guys go and buy people. I mean, next week, I cannot wait for next, TMI starts next week. Actually, it's been kind of a scary series for me. God impressed on my heart to do this. Here we go again. So, hey, you guys got important business for you to do. But, hey, next week, commercial number four in the middle of sermon for the next sermon series, TMI. A long time ago, and I thought, wow, this is going to be heavy. Like, like, ever read the Bible? Read the Bible, and, and you read a passage, and you're like, why is that there? It's, it's weird. It seems inappropriate. It seems strange. It's kind of confusing. You ever read a, a verse like that? Read a verse like that? Uh, I'm going to take you to a passage like that. It, it's going to seem like it doesn't belong in the Bible. It's, it, this series is for someone. Anybody here, you love the Bible. If you love the Bible, this series is for you. Or if you've been really confused by the Bible, this series is for you. Or if you love and you've been confused by the Bible, this is really a good series for you. You with me? And I'm going to show you something that God inspired Moses to write in Leviticus 1200 B.C. And you go read it and go like, eh, why is that there? Then I'm going to run to something that happens in the first century when Jesus touches somebody in need. And it's a miraculous, amazing story. But when you bounce it off of what happened in Leviticus, you're going to go, whoa. And you see what God did is so powerful, so perfect. How the whole thing makes sense over the course of time. And then week two, week two, I'm going to show you something in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Where the prophet is by God, he says something so over the top, something so outrageous. I'm thinking that week two be the one time in the history of the church I'm going to ever tell, guys, don't bring your friends. Oh, you are not going to preach that passage. Oh, good night. Don't bring guests. No newbies week two. All kids have to go to kids stuff because I'm telling you, it's shocking and provocative what's in the Bible, right? And we love guests, but it's just, it'll freak you out. So week two, maybe no guests. Week one, bring your guests. Week two, two. Yeah, we're still in the middle of a commercial for next week's sermon. Um, <clears throat> yeah, see, I don't want him preaching on that passage from Ezekiel because I know he's going to mess it up. Oh, no. No, I'm serious. I mean, it's going to be a really cool study. If you love, if the word of God has ever confused you, it's going to start to make sense. And if you love it, you're going to love it more. TMI starts next week. Someone make your God decision today. Let me pray for you. All right. So that the someone needs to make their God decision today. He's going to pray for him. That's the end of how to hug a vampire dealing with drainers. And, um, well, folks, I, I don't know how else to describe what just happened in this sermon cage fight. It's... Well, I likened it to um, Mike Tyson destroying Pee Wee Herman. It's really that bad. Um, by defeat by explosion, <clears throat> the winner of tonight's cage uh, sermon cage fight is Brent Kuhlman, and uh, he absolutely just decimated uh, David Hughes. It was. even close it wasn't even fair it was wow that's all i gotta say <laughs> so with that i think i'll go ahead and uh sign off if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you could do so my email address talk back at fighting for the faith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.